Thank you, ladies. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen? It's the name of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that. Uh, thank you again for being with us this morning. If you have your Bible, I'd ask that you turn to Psalm chapter 78. Psalm 78. How important is the family structure? God created it thousands of years before he created the church. It, was, it is where every person begins their view of what is normal. It is a group that will always be there. Friends will come and go. Family will always be there. And yes, everyone has that crazy uncle. If your family doesn't, you're probably it. <laughs> Don't feel bad. I am it in my family, I believe. It should be the place we learn to respect authority. Ultimately, the fear of God. As we look across the landscape of America, it's pretty discouraging. I want to give you some statistics on how the family unit is doing in America today. Statistics from Pew Research, these figures are from December of 2015. Let me just read some of these things to you. Four out of ten births occur out of wedlock. In 1960, which is post-World War II baby boom, 73% of all children lived in a family with two parents that were in their first marriage. In 1980, it had dropped to 61% in the same model. And in 2015, only 46%, less than half, are being brought up in the traditional biblical model of a family. A recent three-year study showed that 31% of children younger than six years old have experienced a major change in their family structure in the form of divorce, separation, remarriage, cohabitation, or death. Dr. Richard Ross, an authority on family and parenting issues, came here a couple of years ago and, and did a parenting seminar for us. It was a great time, great weekend for our church. Our staff had the privilege of taking him out to dinner and uh, picking his brain on a few things. And one of the questions that I asked him was this. If you could narrow down a word or phrase, something that could make me be a better parent, what would it be? And he sat there and he thought for a moment. And he said this. He said, provide an atmosphere of stability for your children. There is not a greater stability than the stability found in the rock of Christ Jesus. Amen? Before you check out this morning, because maybe you don't have children, or your children are already grown, or maybe you think it's too late because things are already a mess, let me challenge you in this way. All of you are involved in providing environment for children. The obvious ones are the parents and grandparents that are here this morning, but let me remind you of the not-so-obvious. Every Mother's Day, uh, this church makes a promise Young moms and dads come down here with their child dressed in a cute little outfit. Grandparents are here in reserve seating. And they come down and they stand before this church and they make a promise to you to raise, and to God, more importantly, to raise their children in the fear and the admission of the Lord. Many of you have done that here. But it doesn't stop there. Pastor Scott doesn't stop with that. He has you as the church family stand and make the promise that you will help these young parents to raise these children 
in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You are their church family. Now, please don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we spank other, kids, other people's kids, even though I have permission from some of you to do that. I'm not going to mention names. But here's what I am saying. Is there some avenue in your service to God and Pitts Baptist Church that you are pouring into the life of someone younger than you? I challenge you to go home this afternoon and if you have some time, pick up your Bible and read Titus chapter 2. The older are to be investing in the younger. We have many who serve in our nursery, who serve in Awana. I am so encouraged when I go on Wednesday nights to the Awana Hall and I see people who are loving on these kids, listening to their sections of all age groups, from young people through our senior adults who are loving them. It's encouraging. There, there are choirs, youth, and on and on it goes, people who desire to invest in the lives of their family, their church family. We have facilitators for our Sunday night adult small groups that have been a new thing, that have been, in the beginning, a little bit scary for folks. I've asked some of those leaders to take on the, the responsibility of, of being a facilitator, and some of them came, came to me and said, Kevin, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do that. I said, you can do it. You can do it. They were scared, fearful. But since then, they have realized the value of going in and meeting with this group and week in and week out challenging each other and building those relationships to see people rise up in their walk with the Lord. What a blessing. What a blessing that is to do that, to be involved in the lives of the children of Pitts Baptist Church, their church family, and seek to provide an environment of stability. Are we keeping that promise some of you in this room have gifts gifts to love kids and we plea and you know sometimes I think we think well I've got to do an hour slot this week of child care instead of saying we have an opportunity to pour our lives into these children who God loves to bring them along in their walk with the Lord What a privilege, what an honor to do that. I encourage you to be involved in that. And that brings us to our passage. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set up their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. God, we come to you this morning. And God, I know personally I cannot stand here as a parenting expert. 
God, we fail you so many times in this process to raise our children, whether it be our own personal children or the children of this church. God, I pray you would help us today to be challenged, to be the examples, to desire to see those that come behind us take up the mantle, serve you, God, with all of their heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. As we read this passage, there are a few recurring words that I hope stuck out to you this morning. The first word is generation. There are vast amounts of time spent comparing generations, mostly on how they are different. There are the great generation gaps that many times divide us and cause us to look at other generations in a negative light. The fact is, all generations have had successes and failures. All generations have struggled to adopt the ideas of the former and in some ways have come off as rebellious. But what I hear in this passage is the concern and fear that one generation will fail to pass along the truths of God to the next. Does this happen in families? Another common theme in this passage as we read through this is the challenge to fathers. In a biblical, it is a biblical principle that the husband and the father of the home is to be the spiritual leader. What happens when a father becomes complacent in his walk with the Lord? When church attendance becomes a second-tier priority? When he does not take the lead in praying, in serving, in giving? Worse yet, when he's not even there to lead? We have seen some of those effects over the past few weeks in our cities of children who do not have fathers in the home to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Folks, the next generation is watching. I want you to listen to what John Piper says about this. He calls it the primary source of unconscious influence. He says this, and 90, 99% of the actions you perform that influence your children are unpremeditated actions. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands, perhaps thousands of them every day. Your facial expressions, your posture, your tone of voice, your gestures, your response to the dog and to the weather and the slipping clutch and the dripping faucet and the late spouse and the TV news, and a hundred other spontaneous expressions of who you really are. 99% of the behavior that influences your child is unpremeditated. Was that as sobering for you as it was for me? You may be even making excuses in your mind right now to discount it. You may say, well, well my kids are just little babies who are so attuned to your nonverbal cues they are smart little boogers who seem to gravitate toward the few bad things I say and do and totally miss the many good things I do. Amen? Have you noticed that? That's what they do. But John Piper goes on to give some more insight. He calls it the contagious power of a happy example. Listen to this. He says, Your children will most likely imitate what they see makes you the happiest. Not what they hear you tell them to do, or even what they see you do but don't like to do. 
they will mostly imitate what they see you doing that seems to make you the happiest. Get in the car, we're going to church. The implication of these principles is that we parents should devote most of our energy to becoming a certain kind of person, not trying to master parenting strategies. So it's not only serving and living for God, it is doing it with the right spirit and the right attitude. What are we saying to our children? When church and when service and when the things of God are second, are a matter of convenience. So how does this passage instruct us? There are some big rocks of parenting and who we are laid out for us. And the first one is this. Number one, you teach your children the truth about God. You do that. Look at verses one through four again. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, that we will not hide them from their children. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Folks, it is not enough to take our children to church, to get them involved in Awana, to search for a solid children and youth program, to rely on others to teach our children the truth about God. The church and Christian programming should come alongside parents and reinforce what is being taught at home. It is not their primary responsibility. It is ours as parents. So what is this going to require? You understanding the deeper truths of God. Because it is going to happen, if it hasn't already, that your child is going to come to you with one of those humdinger kind of questions. And you're going to have to look at them and say one of two things. Uh, I don't know, but I will find out. Or you're going to make up some weird cockamamie answer and they're going to look at you and go, huh? You know, I love working with our, our college, our young adult age group. I think they pride themselves and enjoy in asking those humdinger questions to Pastor Kevin. Let's try to stump him. I love it, though. And there are times I have to look at them in my pride. And yes, I've been to seminary. And yes, I've been to Bible school. But sometimes I have to look at them. Where's Ivadi? Where, yeah. Look at them and say, Ivadi, great question. I don't know. But I will find out. And my next call, usually the next day, is to go and see Pastor Scott. <laughs> the walking concordance. That's what I call him. Or look, you know, begin searching online. But what does that do for us? When our kids, when our young adults come to us with those stumpers, what does it do? It makes us dig, doesn't it? It makes us become grounded and look for those answers and know how to give a godly scriptural answer. That's what we need to be about, don't we? Ground yourselves in the deeper teachings of Scripture. In Matthew 13, the disciples asked Jesus why he teaches using parables. And if you were to go to that passage, you would see Jesus tells all these teaching stories. 
and all of them have this deeper spiritual meaning. And, and the disciples are kind of like, why don't you just say it plainly? But why does he respond? In verse 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. Jesus knew the reason that many people followed after him, hung out with him, was because they wanted their next free meal. They wanted to, to have a benefit for them from Jesus. They wanted to see the next cool magic trick that he was going to perform in his miracles. Maybe, just maybe, when Jesus went in to set up his kingdom, they could get in on the loot. He knew their motivation. That's why he went deeper. That's why he went to the deeper truths of the scripture. We need to do that with our children. There are a lot of surface things we can talk about with our kids, but get into some of the deep truths of God's word with them. They need to be grounded. Let me give you an example. We need to be teaching the fact that God is love. But God is also just. A tougher truth. It says here to instruct them in the dark sayings from of old. It is easy to teach our children about a warm, fuzzy God who is patient and kind and always gracious, but what about a God who will judge people for their sin? Verses 1 through 8 are just the introduction to this psalm. The writer goes on to tell the history of Israel. This is the parable he's referring to, the story. And many of you know the recurring theme that happens over and over for Israel. God took care of them. They forgot God and rebelled. God would allow them to be captured. They would cry out to God. God would come to their aid, their rescue, and begin to bless them again. They would forget God, and the cycle would begin over and over and over. And we find a summary in verses 34 to 38 of this same chapter. Look at what it says. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Do you think this cycle was a result of them not learning from the past? Of the older adults who went through this difficult process of not telling the younger the honest truth of what would happen if they went down the same road we did. Verse 4 says, they will not hide the truth from their children. Why did they have to say that? Because apparently people were hiding the strong teaching, the deeper teaching from the next generation. Why would they do that? Could it have been their pride? I don't want this generation behind me to see my failures. In fact, I want to forget my failures. But let's be honest with ourselves. Where do you and I learn the most? Is it in our successes it's in failure. It's in the school of hard knocks. It's in that valley where we turn to God. We need to swallow our pride and allow the next generation to skip our failures of the past. And that requires eating some humble pie sometimes. 
passing the baton to the next generation is tough, but that is many times where the race is won. You know, I've always enjoyed the relay races at Awana Games. I actually competed in the Awana Olympics. It was called the Awana Olympics when I was in it, but then copyright infringements came about and they had to change to the Awana Games. Uh, I did that several times as a clubber, and yes, Awana has been around that long, smart Alex. (laughs) Our coach, his name was Mr. Lapp, would drill into us the relays were won by the team that made the best passes. So we would practice over and over and over. It had to be flawless and fast. Our hands had to be just right so the passes would be secure. The next runner would have to begin his lap at just the right time so the exchange could be made in that very small window of the passing zone and us not be disqualified. Some of you that are in Awana know what I'm talking about. It has to be detailed and calculated. I had the opportunity to coach a few of you in this room uh, on Awana teams, and we did the same thing. I remember the eyes rolling again. We got to do this again. Many times the difference, though, in first and second place was not the team who had the fastest runners, but how they exchanged exchanged the baton. How important is it that we do that for those coming behind us, folks? Aren't you glad that someone did that for you? To come alongside you and disciple you? I think all of our staff would echo the privilege that it has been to have Dr. Willis and Miss Dot here on our staff. How many times have we faced a stumper in staff meeting and looked over at Dr. Willis, who many times just seems to be observing and taking in the conversation, but then pastor asks him, what do you think, Dr. Willis? And he clears his throat, and that deep voice comes out, I can't do it. But he says, back in 1973, we faced this issue, but don't do like I did. And then he goes on to tell what God did in the success of that situation. It makes us think through what is ahead. That is the tough, laborious work of passing the baton. But in that work, the younger are made the wiser. So number one, you teach your children the truth about God to your family and to your church family. Number two, the word of God has to be your foundation and authority. It has to be. Look at verses 5 and 6 again, what they say. It says, he established a testimony. Some of your translations may say uh, a statue, a principle in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. While I was still in college, I took a summer youth pastor position in a small church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Randomly one day, a mom called me with a problem she was having with her teenage daughter. They were arguing about this issue, and she wanted me to give her a Bible verse she could use to win the argument. Before I got into the issue with her, I asked this question, ma'am, I don't mean any disrespect, but do you regularly, regularly use the Bible to discipline your daughter? She said, no, that's why I'm calling you. 
I replied, again, I don't mean any disrespect, but all this is going to do is turn her against the word of God if it's not used on a regular basis. She did not like that answer too well, but I did go on to give her some biblical and cultural advice and yes, Hebrews 4:13 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But our intentions in using this sword must also be right. Is it to bring people closer to God in understanding the truth or to simply win an argument, win that battle and lose the war? How do we wield the word of God? How do we use it? Are our intentions correct? Do your children know that the Bible is your foundation and your authority? Do you refer to it often, not just in times to win an argument, but in times to praise God for his blessing, to rejoice in what he's doing what happens when we make the word of God our foundation? It says here in this passage that it will affect generations to come. It says that in verse 6, the children yet unborn, it affects even them. How many uh, grandparents do we have in here this morning? Would you raise your hand? All over, I see those hands. How much do you love your grandkids? Can you even say it in words? I, I, I'm not there yet but I see how y'all act. Y'all are nuts about your grandkids. Probably right now in your pocket are several pictures of your grandkids, if not on your phone or electronic device. You just want to do for them. You want to spoil them, right? Do you know the greatest thing you could do for your grandkids is to pass along the statutes of God. I still remember my grandfather. His name was Commodore. That's now my middle name. A salute if you use it. Asking me as a young boy if I knew that I was a Christian. He wanted, and he just, a yes wasn't enough. He said, well, tell me about it. Tell me how you, how you became a Christian, Kevy. And don't call me that either. <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted to know what it was. I still remember him serving as the, the chairman of the deacons and, and serving on the finance committee at church. He was a leader in the church. The pastor would call on him to pray in our church. I've watched my dad do the same. I want to do the same. So my children and their children want to do the same. Are you with me? So we've said all this in some ways to get to verse 7. I want you to start back at verse 5, and let's lead into verse 7. It says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet, yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So that they set their hope in God. 
Folks, when this happens in our kids, our job as a parent is in some ways done. But as a parent, we sometimes lose focus on what we should be setting our hope in. That filters over into the way we encourage our children to set their hopes. Think about this. Get that high GPA. Make that, get that academic scholarship, maybe even valedictorian. Get that degree and that job that pulls six figures. Become the greatest athlete. Set your hope in the American dream. You may be thinking, do you not want our kids to do their best? Do you not want us to challenge them to become self-sufficient and successful? Of course I do. But what is true success? God wants us to do our best in all things. But what does Jesus ask in Mark 8.36? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? True success is when we see our kids get it. When they want to serve. When they want to give. When they want to worship. When they want to be around other believers. And you know in your heart that they are doing it to bring glory to God. And that is their first priority. They have set their hope in God. Sad verse, we did not read it, but when you go on to verse 9, it says the Ephraimites, armed with the bow, ready to go into battle, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them in the sight of their fathers he performed wonders in the land of Egypt. It goes on and on. But what a tragedy. They forgot. And do you know the statistics of those that are forgetting and walking away from the church? 86% of our students who leave and go off to college will never return to the church. Staggering. They forgot. Why? I believe it's a big part, folks, is that the generation behind them are not reminding them, are not grounding them into the deeper truths of who God is and in God's word. I want to close with something in this passage that would be easy to overlook. When you go to the beginning of this chapter, you'll notice a title before verse 1. The ESV says, A Maskell of Asaph. Now, I looked up the word maskell. It's thought of by scholars as an identifier of a particular type of song or composition. So we could say this, it is a particular song of the man named Asaph. Asaph was the one who penned this. There's several psalms. Who, uh, uh, that Asaph penned. But in 1 Chronicles 6, we see the first mention of this man named Asaph. He's identified as a cymbal player. Now, those of you who are in band or orchestra know that this does not 
obviously require the same abilities as the harpist or the trumpeter. I mean, you got one note. Just hit it on the right time, guy. You know? But in 1 Chronicles 16, Asaph is identified as one of the chief musicians of David. And by 1 Chronicles 25, we see the sons of Asaph leading with him. And from then on, if Asaph is identified, he's identified along with his sons. What does that tell me? Asaph didn't just talk about it. Asaph didn't just write about it. Asaph lived it and passed it along to his sons, and we are still reading about it this morning. Folks, it makes a difference through the generations. Asaph passed along a godly legacy to his sons and then probably to their sons. A godly legacy. How are you doing with your legacy? Let's pray. God, there are so many times in the parenting process that we fail miserably. We even have to go back to our kids and apologize, ask for their forgiveness, because, God, we are still human. But, God, what an awesome privilege, but what an awesome responsibility you have given us to raise a human being We can all in this room that have children remember that day when we first heard the cry. When we first saw their little face. And that daunting task came on our shoulders to think, God, I have to be responsible to raise this child, to love you. Help us, Lord. Help us. Give us wisdom. We ask for it. You said you'd give it to us liberally, God. We ask for that. God, if there are those this morning who need to do work with you, God, I pray they'd be doing that right now in the silence of their pew. God, they may need to go to their kids today and say some things to them. God, you're our heavenly Father. And you love us with a love that we don't understand. But God, we need to have that same kind of love. Teach us to be like you. All of God's people said, amen.